Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. Dr. Uh, Kevin McCain, uh, one, glad to have you on the show. And uh, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into philosophy and uh, how did you get interested in this topic, understanding scientific explanation? Uh, well, first, PJ, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and as with many things, uh, the, the answer to the, the other question of how I got into philosophy is kind of a long and winding tale, but I, I, I'm, I'm happy to tell it to you. Um, so I originally, for the longest time, uh, thought I was going to go into law, right? So even growing up as a kid, I, I wanted to be an attorney and so on. And so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to do law school. So when I started my undergraduate, you know, education, I didn't care what major I took. I just kind of took for a while, whatever major was uh, said to be good for going to law school. So I started um, as a proposed political science major took a political science class and hated it, dropped that, became an English literature major for a semester. That was okay, but dropped that. Um, <laughs> it was undeclared for a while, found out psychology was good for um, law school. And so I declared a psychology major. And then pretty late in the game, probably my junior year, when I completed all of my requirements for the psychology degree, except for one, I took a philosophy class. Well, I take that back. I took my second philosophy class. My first philosophy class I had taken as a freshman or sophomore was intro to philosophy, which I hated and dropped because <laughs> I, I didn't care much for the professor's style. I found it very boring. So I actually, um, it's kind of interesting. I've never been a student all the way through an intro to philosophy class. And I have <laughs> no idea uh, how well I did on my first philosophy paper because I wrote the paper for that class and dropped the class before I ever got any grades in it. <laughs> As luck would have it, I, I went to a, a, a small state university. And so uh, I ended up having to take that same professor for like four other classes once I decided to major, but that's another story. So anyway, um, I was in my junior year and I took a philosophy class. It was actually logic. So probably to most people, the least interesting, you know, philosophy course. But I took that because it was recommended, hey, you know, you should take logic classes because that can help you with the LSAT for getting into law school. I took it, really liked the professor, really liked the course, uh, took another one and thought, well, I'm going to add a philosophy major in addition, which was kind of a pain because the degrees are two separate degrees at that university. So it's a bachelor's of science in psychology, bachelor of arts in philosophy. So I was like, well, I'm going to do it and I'll, I'll stick around an extra year to, to finish it. Then talking with that uh, professor who ended up being my advisor, uh, he had a law degree. And then he kind of explained to me more of what attorneys actually do rather than my perception from television. And then I had a moral quandary, uh, or I faced a moral quandary, which was I really wanted to go into criminal law. And then it struck me that I would really not want to have to defend someone who I thought was innocent, or excuse me, guilty and deserved to be punished. And on the flip side, I wouldn't want to have to prosecute someone who I thought didn't deserve to be prosecuted. 
And I thought this would be horrible. And then I also thought, well, I really like philosophy and I like teaching. So um, I decided to drop the, the plans for law school and go to grad school in philosophy. And so that's kind of what got me into philosophy. So I said, it's, it's kind of a long story there. Um, yeah. For this particular it's a good one, though. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a winding tale. And I think for many of us that go into philosophy, you mentioned you have a master's. Yours may be somewhat similar where it's, we kind of get there eventually. Um, for this particular topic, um, I've worked for quite a while now in epistemology. So the, the area of philosophy that deals with um, knowledge and what makes for good evidence, um, what's understanding and so on. And that's kind of my, my main area. Um, but over the years, and in particular, my views in epistemology are that knowledge and uh, rationality are intimately connected with explanation. So hmm. very roughly, the sort of theory that I defend in my you know, academic work is that what makes a belief rational is that it is part of the best explanation for the evidence we have, you know, broadly construed. Um, and this sort of book that the uh, understanding how science explains the world gets a lot to that explanation aspect of it. Uh, and so that kind of got me to the topic. Um, this book in particular, I worked on these sorts of issues on uh, how explanation leads to knowledge in general and how it leads to scientific knowledge and understanding in particular. Um, and the series editor and I had co-authored a book before he became series editor. And then he suggested to me, he said, you know, I'd really like to have something on explanation in this series, right? So this is part mm. of the Understanding Life series, which is a series of books aimed at a general audience, uh, really focusing on issues in the life sciences. Mm. And most of the other titles in the series are much more narrowly focused. So things like uh, understanding coronavirus, understanding heredity, understanding oh, you know evolution okay. versus development, that sort of thing. Well, the series editor said, you know, it'd be nice to have a more broad um, entry that's on understanding, you know, scientific explanation. And he said, you know, I think uh, you might be a good pick for this. Do you want to write up a proposal that we can send out for review and so on? And so I, I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so I did and got good feedback on the proposal, changed some things. And here we are. I love it. And uh, I, even as I was looking at the book, it definitely struck me as um, you know, I, I have some background in philosophy. And when you talk about explanation, even like hermeneutics, I understand some of the issues involved. But um, it seems like such a great antidote to a lot of people just misunderstanding what science does. And so, uh, one, I'm really excited about today's interview, but also just excited about the book in general. Um, so for our audience, uh, one, you know, I, I talked a little bit briefly before about how uh, I've done some work in philosophy of art, philosophy of literature. And one of the things that's interesting to me about, and has always been interesting to me about literary discourse is that it's not explanatory, right? Like, uh, when it is explanatory, it's really, it's kind of incidental. That's not the point of it. And so I'm really excited today for people to understand, like one of the things like explan explanatory discourse, uh, exists in very different modes, right? But science is definitely one of the main ones. And so I, I don't know, I'm probably just a little too excited about today's <laughs> uh, interview, but uh, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about what explanation is. Um, and, you know, I mean, even here is I, yeah, I'm kind of just going through the outline of your book, um, why it matters for science. 
Yeah, that that's a great question, PJ. So the uh, in general explanation is just answering certain sorts of questions in a particular way, mm-hmm. right? So we mm-hmm. we use explanations all the time, as you mentioned. You know, in various contexts, they may look a bit different, but we're after the same thing. We're answer you know answering questions about why are things the way they are, uh, how does this sort of thing occur, right? So. You can think of a, even simple things. A, a classic example in the philosophy of science literature is um, explaining why it is that uh, a bottle of ink fell to the floor, right? So just an explanation, someone's arm hit it, right? That's an explanation. It tells us why this yeah. happened. It even gives us a clue on how these sorts of things happen, right? So we learn from this that you know if there are other objects near the edge of a table and you hit them, they're liable to fall as well. Uh, so in simplest terms, I think that's what explanation is all about. Why are why is something the case? How did it come to be that way? Now, that's important for us in general, just in terms of it helps us navigate the world, right? It helps us kind of predict and make plans about what we should do. If we figure out why something is this way, maybe we can do things to make it not be that way anymore. Or, um, if we learn how to produce something or how to keep something from happening, that gives us a bit more control. And when it comes to science, I think one of the main epistemic goals of science is understanding. Right? We want to understand how the world is. Um, and the way that we get understanding is through having explanations. Right? So plausibly, um, at least very generally, to have true understanding of some particular phenomenon or even, you know, uh, maybe even more broadly, to understand just about anything is to have in your possession the correct explanation. So what I mean by in possession is like you actually grasp it. So so not not in the sense of, you know, you've written down the explanation of it and I have that in my possession, but more I, I've read it and have, you know, have awareness of it and can appreciate it. Then I understand what's going on. And so I, I think that's, the primary epistemic goal of science is to have understanding. And as I argue for in the book, the vehicle by which we get scientific understanding is explanations. Hmm. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by pos- like being in possession of? Yes, yes, that's a great question. So the thought being, um, I, I grasp the, the, the explanation, right? So we might say some philosophers want to say, I, I know the correct explanation, so I have knowledge of it. I'm hesitant to do that uh, just because I think for, you know, probably uh, somewhat esoteric reasons, you know, having to do with, the, you know, epistemology and worries about skepticism that other people sh- probably don't and shouldn't worry about. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm hesitant to say you have to know it, but maybe um, you have to have a rational belief in that explanation right, in the parts of it, and it has to actually be true or something like that. But, you know, in loose talk, yeah, we, one way to get it is, you know the correct explanation. So for instance, um, if say your car isn't working right, and you understand, or excuse me, I should say this, you know that um, the problem is you have a dead battery. So in this case, you understand why the car isn't working. Right? Because you know the correct explanation for why it isn't working. And so that's kind of what we mean by um, you possess the explanation, right? It's, it's um, something that you have mental access to. 
Would it be fair to say, and I think this will get into some of the section on models, that uh, while knowledge is distinct from action, you know something if you follow through on it and the action occurs as you think it will. Good. Does that good. make sense? Uh, yeah, that makes sense, I think. Um, like I the think dead battery. Like, it's like, you, you, like if, it, if it's the dead battery and you change it and then the car starts working again, then you did know, right? Oh, good, good, good. Versus, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's helpful. Versus, yeah, so, yeah, very good. I think uh, maybe what I would, uh, a slight variation of that is what I would say is sure. that following through with the action confirms that you're correct, right? Gives you additional right. evidence, right? So you right, might have right. known it. So for instance, we might, yeah. you might know that the battery is the problem, but be unable to change it for whatever reason. Say, you know, say yeah. I'm sick in bed and I'm like, oh, it's the battery, but I just, you know, I can't do anything about it. It could be that I know this and I'm right but I can't get that additional confirmation from it. So but if I pass that knowledge on, it could be, it could be for someone else. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's uh, one of the ways, yeah. you know, and, and we can, there, there's differences on, you know, how much is required for knowledge. Right. right. So one person might say, oh, I know full well, because I can reason through this. Uh, you know, I, I'm aware of what the possibilities are for why the car won't start. And, I know that it's not various other ones, and so I can know that it's battery. Whereas someone else might say, that's not good enough. I have to do like you mentioned, and I need to go and test it and see. And then once I do that, then I have knowledge. And that, and that could be, right? So there the, the disagreement isn't about, you know, what's required for understanding or so on. It's a difference in terms of how much evidence do you need in order to have knowledge. One, one person is saying, well, the standard is here, and another person saying, no, we have to meet a higher standard. Yeah, so I can use this. Yeah, this came up with uh, Dr. Kevin Elliott. We were talking about values in science. And uh, he mentioned um, that one of the things that's really important when we talk about values in science is how much weight we need uh, from evidence for certain experiments because they have more ethical implications, right? Like if my, if my car is the only way I can get to work, like that knowledge is going to be considerably more important than like some junker that, you know, like maybe it's just sitting out in the, in the lawn. Um, you know, maybe that's central Florida talking there, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I could definitely see. And I think that's where even we get into, you, you talk about different kinds of scientific explanation, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, do you mind listing some of the different kinds of scientific explanations? And I think that'll help people understand, uh, one, I think this is really important because, you know, common, uh, you know, especially between philosophers and like what I'd say the average person, um, most people intuitively grasp what's an explanation, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of the work you're doing is is delineating those. So what constitutes uh, a scientific explanation and what are those different kinds? Good, good. I, and I think that's a great point about um you know, the average person grasping what an explanation is, because as I mentioned in the book, the difference between an everyday explanation and a scientific explanation is a difference of degree, but not kind, I think. Right. So they're not different kinds of things in, in this broad sense. Mm. They're just they have differences in terms of degree. Right. So the scientific okay. explanation is maybe more precise. Um, it's maybe more generalizable, but it, it's the same sort of thing. We're still answering why questions and how questions. Now, that being said, there, there are important distinctions we can draw 
um, amongst different kinds of scientific explanations. So in the book, as I mentioned, it's part of the Understanding Life series. So I look at, uh, in particular, this sort of distinction between historical explanations and experimental explanations. And experimental explanations, I think, are what most people think of when they think of a scientific explanation, right? It's, right. You go into the lab, you run some tests, you see what happens, and then you form an explanation about why this is what happens, right? You know, um, so you put some litmus paper in a chemical, it turns a certain color, it turns red. How do you explain that? Well, it's the, the chemical is acidic and, you know, and then you have background information about litmus paper turns red, you know, when it's in an acid. Um, that's sort of an, that's an experimental explanation. And that's what most people think of. But there may also be historical explanations where we can't run an experiment, but we can look at things that have happened. So things, you know, in terms of geology and so on, like, why is there this difference in, say, uh, the soil, um, you know, at a certain level from the southern? Well, you know, we can explain that by, say, maybe there was a meteorite impact, and that explains this sort of difference. Maybe there was um, some plate movement, and that's caused a certain part of the soil to move above the other. And so that's still explaining, right? Still saying why, but it's you you can't test it in the lab, right? So it's not like, okay, let's let's just go run this test again. And so there that's an important distinction. And one thing that I think it's interesting about that is it gives rise to what I think is a, a mistake. And that's where people think the experimental explanation is inherently better than the historical one. Um, and I think that's that's incorrect for at least a couple of reasons. One, in actual practice, it's hard to separate the two, right? So conceptually, I, I told you, and it's like, oh yeah, this is kind of easy to see the difference. Right. In scientific practice, it's it's often hard to draw that hard and fast line because people will be using historical data and so on. You know, to well, make technically, it's all historical data, right? I mean, if you really get down to it, <laughs> that's right. If you really, yeah, that now that's spoken like you a true stickler, yeah. <laughs> Right. Because it happened in the past. It's historical. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you, no one can do all the experiments by themselves. So you have to take even some of it on authority. Right. You have to trust that even if you like most scientists haven't met every single scientist that they use their data from. In fact, that'd be technically probably impossible. Most of the time you're going to use scientists who have who've been long dead. And so uh, I think I think that's a great uh, and important point. Um, I've been I've been laughing a little bit because and uh, for my listeners, I, they're probably tired of me bringing this up, but I grew up independent fundamental Baptist. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you talk about uh, I had we had a lot of uh, creationist seminars and one of the things that they uh, would be very frustrated with, you know, one of their like big claims was that uh, you could not prove evolution by experimentation. And so I think what you're talking about is super helpful because it's like yeah but it's an historical explanation and it seems to fit a lot of what's happening right um <laughs> which you know yeah, when, there's I, a, not good to that but yeah go ahead <laughs> no no that's i think that's exactly right i think that's a kind of a profound misunderstanding of what it takes for something to be scientific or well supported um to say well you know you can't prove this via experiment so it's not scientific uh, yeah but one even even if that were correct, <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't yeah. mean that it's false, right? Yeah, right, there right, right. Things, there are a lot of things that are true, but we can't prove via scientific methods, right? Um, there are, but 
flip side, you know, that can't be the standard of, you know, show that it's true via an experiment for science, because we'd have to just get rid of large areas of what's clearly well-supported science, which seems and what, extreme. And that we're using to build uh, experimental stuff on, right? Like, right, and then it, it goes back and forth. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what are biological explanations? Um, and I think you talk about here, uh, the difference between actual sequence versus robust process. Good, good. And this is a, a like with, with a lot of these philosophers of science disagree on how important these distinctions are. So one of the reviewers, uh, for this book who actually gave me feedback is, uh, uh, a friend of mine and a philosopher of science, uh, who thinks that some of these distinctions are not worth making, right? Someone else. Uh, he disagreed with you. How can you guys still be friends? I'm shocked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then, you know, of course, one of the other reviewers is no, you, you have to talk about this distinction because it's so important. <laughs> of course. You know? So yeah, what do yeah, you do? Yeah. Um, but the, the, the general idea there is, is pretty straightforward. So an actual sequence explanation uh, gives you information. It explains what happened by looking at the actual sequence of events, right? So the names kind of says it all there. Uh, right. So that's one sort of explanation. But a robust process explanation is different in that it doesn't necessarily look at the actual sequence, but it looks at here's a range of things that could have happened that would have led to this same result. Does that make sense? So you, you kind of look at there, instead of pointing to with the first one, you point to this is the actual process that produced this result, which is an important mm -hmm. kind of explanation. Whereas robust process explanations might say, here are a number of processes, any one of which would have produced the same result. Uh, can you give me an example? Right, good. I mean, so like a, an everyday sort of example might be, uh, so say again, uh, let's see, how would be a, a good everyday example here? Let's take the, the car again. Yeah. So the, the car isn't starting, right? So an actual sequence is, why doesn't the car start? Well, the battery is dead, you know, this particular feature of the battery, right? So the battery is dead because this particular, I, I don't know what they're called in it, but like the channel of battery acid, this particular one is too low, right? Since it is too low, that led to, you know, it not having enough electrical charge to, you know, get your starter going, get the, the motor going and everything. Uh, a robust process explanation might point out that, you know, if this channel were too low, it wouldn't start. If this one were too, this other one were too low, it wouldn't start. If this other one were too low, if the battery had a hole in it, you know, so it gives all these different ways in which the same result would apply. That's kind of very roughly uh, the sort of idea. Hence the robust. Yes. So yeah, right. it's not There's just so many ways this would have occurred. Now, one of the ways you can see this uh, in which I think of as a robust analysis explanation, some may disagree. Um, there are what's sometimes called equilibrium explanations okay. in, in biology. And so that's where you explain how uh, particular initial conditions could be all these various different initial conditions have to lead to the same result, right? So one example of this is uh, what are known as the Fisher sex ratios. And so that's this, or excuse me, the Fisher sex ratio. That's this idea that if you start, if you look at, um, sexually reproducing organisms. If you start with a population, whatever uh, mixture there happens to be, whatever the ratio of male to female is in the population, doesn't matter. As long as you know there's no outside force that comes in and wipes them out or whatever, after 
uh, so many generations, they will reach a balance of about 50%, regardless of where you start, right? The, the evolutionary pressures will lead to uh, preferences, you know, so say you start out in the, in the, uh, in the population with a higher percentage of females to males. Well, then uh, producing male offspring will have a reproductive, or excuse me, an evolutionary advantage, right? And so those genes will be passed on more often and you'll end up with more and more males being born until you get to about an equal amount where there's no longer an advantage. And what's really interesting about this is that's sort of a robust analysis explanation, right? Because it's, it shows all these different ways you're going to end up in the same endpoint is the, the kind of thought. So that's a way of thinking of it. Got it. And it, so, uh, and you've touched on it briefly, you know, and I'm just, I'm kind of walking through your book here. Um, can you explain a little bit more um, about how uh, historical explanations are scientific? Oh, good, good. Yeah. And so they, they still involve the sorts of things that we typically think of in science, right? So they, they involve observation, empirical study, and so on. Um, I think that's, that's enough to count as scientific to okay. my mind, right? Um, it's tricky in one sense to say, why do these count as scientific versus something else? And that's because I think uh, we're yet to have a good answer to what's called the demarcation problem. And that's the problem of simply saying, what does it take for something to be scientific versus not scientific? I was just about to ask. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's an extremely hard question, right? Yeah. Every, I have yet to see a, a fully satisfactory answer. Hmm. Um, it is hard enough. It's, it's such a hard problem that many philosophers of science think it, it can't be answered and we shouldn't even worry about it. Right. Like that there isn't a good answer. And, and part of the, the issue is, you know, some people might hear this and think, well, of course I can say what it counts. You know, well, I challenge you, if you come up with a good answer, see if it does both of these two things or these few things. One gets all of the paradigm sciences to count as scientific. So biology, physics, you know, uh, astronomy, so on, chemistry. And two rules out all these things that we don't want to count as scientific, like say astrology, right? Whatever, <laughs> you know, sorry if anyone thinks astrology is scientific uh, or is a science. Um, and the problem is it's hard to do that, right? It's really hard to rule these out. Um, yeah. If you get a, typically what happens is if you get uh, or offer a criteria that's strong enough to rule out the clear cases of what we might want to call it, you know, pseudoscience, things that, try to look scientific, but maybe aren't, if it's that strong, it'll also rule out things that are paradigm cases of legitimate science. Uh, if it's loose enough or weak enough to get all the paradigm cases of science in, it'll start letting in some of this other stuff, right? So you might yeah. think, initially someone might say something like the following. So I, when I teach philosophy of science to students, I, I always talk about this problem because it's, it's such a great one. Students can grasp it immediately. And one of the things they'll say is something like, well, you, you know, it's not scientific if uh, it doesn't rely on experiments, if you can't run experiments to test it. And I say, okay, well, what about theoretical physics? You know, areas that are still just purely theoretical. Right. Do we say they're not scientific? I mean, you say, okay, well, no, maybe it's not that. They, they just have to, um, say, do some empirical investigation, like make predictions about what happens in the world. Astrology does that. 
you are going to have a nice week this week because the the planets and stars are in a certain position, right? That's I mean, it is empirical. <laughs> it's empirical. It says something yeah. about the world, right? So it's really, really hard uh, to yeah to give a good answer there. Um, I'm inclined to say it's it's tricky. It's one of those sorts of things which is totally unsatisfying, where it seems like we can recognize a science when we see it. Yes, <laughs> recognize something's not when we see it, but we can't quite spell out why. Um, yeah, that's something that happens a lot in philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, it does remind me, and uh, this is, you know, uh, Wittgenstein's been kind of circling my brain through some of this discussion. And even as you're, you're talking about, like, it almost sounds like we're like in a family resemblance kind of problem. Exactly. Um, right. Yes. I mean, not necessarily a problem, you know, for, for Wittgenstein, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had talked to Catherine Malibu um, on uh, about uh, Kant's uh, view of the transcendental. And one of the things that, you know, Kant had been working on, um, I'm saying like, like I know him or something, uh, no, but like he, uh, when you're chatting the, with Emmanuel. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the, you know, hopefully your definition of science doesn't include like necromancy, you know? Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, um, one of the things that he, uh, that she kind of drew from it was that the split between, um, uh, that people often struggle with in the transcendental actually refers to the split in the sciences between biology mm. and, and physical sciences, especially something like physics. Mm. And, um, and it, even as you're talking about the paradigmatic sciences, it sounds like you could almost come up with a definition if it didn't have to include things like biology. Right. Like right, right. anything that involves uh, things with purpose. And that's kind of like the, the whole point. What like she she was doing a rereading of Kant and um, kind of talking about how the transcendental actually evolves over time. Um, uh, or, or technical term was epigenesis. But. That the, the whole point was <laughs> that. Uh, life sciences have to rely on purpose because life has purpose, whereas physics does not, right? The physical mm -hmm. sciences do not. And is that often what causes this kind of problem? Like, am I tracking a little that's bit here? A, that's or? a good question. I, it, it may be, although I, I find that um, the problem might be caused by something even broader. Um, okay. So if you, so even things that maybe are, that our explanations don't appeal to, to purpose in particular, but if we say, well, you can't run experiments to prove whatever theories, you know, and so on, you have a hard time with things like astronomy, right? What experiment can we do to show that, you know, this sort of star is going to explode in this sort of way, right? We can run tests and we have observations and we, we form good explanations and we come to know these things, but it's, we're not going to reproduce, you know, exploding stars in a lab. At least not that I'm aware of. Yeah, right? hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So the person who makes that sort of claim to rule out things like, say, astrology is also going to rule out astronomy. And it doesn't seem like that's going to quite get to it. But definitely, you know, I mean, if you uh, I, I do think there when we're looking at just the kind of classic hard sciences, which a lot of philosophy of science, when it initially got going, say, 50s. Uh, you know, and, and probably even earlier, like mid 20th centuries, I don't know, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, was really focused on physics, right? And so 
when you're really focused on physics, it may seem like you can give a clear answer to this. So, you know, Karl Popper had this famous thing. It's, it's just falsification. Can you design an experiment to test and show that it's false, you know, that your hypothesis is false? If you can, it's scientific. If it's not, you can't. And he was really against uh, two things. He, he really wanted to rule out uh, psychoanalysis as being scientific, and he really wanted to rule out Marxism. Right. And he said, you know, these don't cut it. They're not scientific. But and then he was a big fan of Einstein. He was like, you know, but something like relativity does. Um, the problem is um, lots of things are falsifiable. Right. So, again, <laughs> I like to use astrology. Right. You can test your horoscope says you're going to have a great week or you're, you're going to come into some, a large amount of money. Test it. You didn't come into a large amount of money. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that should make it scientific. <laughs> Right. And, and then there's also, you know, there's these philosophical worries that uh, the sort of crucial experiment that Popper's talking about, where you can run a single experiment and determine that something's false, that those don't exist. Uh, right. So, you know, Pierre Duhem and uh, uh, Quine, they, they work in separately, but they produced what's it's attributed to both of them, I guess, because independently what's called the Duhem Quine thesis is this idea that um, scientific testing and scientific theories and acceptance and so on is holistic in the sense that you don't just have a theory or a hypothesis because on their own, they won't give you any predictions, right? You have to include various auxiliary hypotheses that we don't even think about, such as this instrument can measure what I'm looking for. It's accurate and so on. And according to the Duhem Quine thesis, whenever you run an experiment and it yields a result that seems to conflict with your hypothesis, you can give up the hypothesis or you can give up an auxiliary hypothesis and can, you know, maintain the hypothesis. Cause so basically their thought in general terms is we never test a single hypothesis in isolation. We always test this big cluster of things. And when you get uh, an experimental result that conflicts with the cluster, that only shows you something in that large group is wrong. It doesn't tell you what. And so they worry, you know, that the sort of, uh, critical or crucial experiment that Popper says we should do doesn't exist. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's, there are philosophers who disagree with that and say there's ways to bypass what Doom and Quine are up to, you know, by testing various different ways. But that's kind of just, you know, some of the idea and some of the challenges with um, a, a sort of classic response to that demarcation problem, right? Falsification doesn't seem to be enough. Right. I mean, the idea that there's a pure experiment seems to deny our basic finitude, right? Like we can't control for everything. And it's it's amazing, you know, what could mess something up. Um, uh, and especially like when you think and maybe uh, maybe this is an issue. Um, uh, maybe this would be simple for Popper to answer. But like even when you talk about a single experiment, right? Like it really it would have to be multiple experiments because you, you need to like repeatability is important. Um, uh, and that's, I'm sure that gets also into the robust versus the actual, uh, events, right? Like you, you'd need to run enough experiments to, if you think it's important to have the robust process as well. Um, so talk to us and you, you've, you know, we've kind of gotten into this uh, a little bit, what makes for a better or worse, uh, explanation? Um, and, you know, we've started talking even a little bit about predictive power, but, um, definitely uh, interested in that. Yeah, that, that is a, that's a great question. That's, um, I think, super important. And 
no matter what answer I give, it's going to be somewhat controversial. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you the answer that I like. <laughs> yeah, I, think okay, that's fair. Um, I think that, and it, it's interesting too, though, I should mention this. It's, it's more or less controversial depending on who you talk to, right? So uh, philosophers of science are more inclined, at least some of them, to think that, yeah, of course, certain things are, they make for better explanations. Why? Scientists seem to look for these things, produce theories that have these features, and they get things right. That's a good enough. Epistemologists are more inclined to say, well, you know, just because they got it right doesn't mean, you know, that's not good enough, right? We want more justification. Uh, but the sorts of things that, that I think of, one, like you mentioned, predictive power is a big thing, right? So if you have a theory or a hypothesis that allows you to make accurate predictions, that's a very good sign that it's, it's on the right track, at least. Uh, another thing is what we might call, though, explanatory power. Does it allow us to answer uh, a lot of why questions and how questions, right? These explanatory questions. Uh, so one way to think of this is, is comparatively. So if we have two hypotheses, if one of them answers a whole host uh, of explanatory questions, how and why various things happen, and the other one only answers a few, then the first has more explanatory power, and at least on that measure, is a better explanation than the second, right? Because it's, it's explaining more. Uh, another feature is simplicity. So in terms of uh, the simpler explanation, in general, they tend to be better. Now, simplicity, of course, which is somewhat ironic, is a very complex subject, right? There are uh, many different forms of simplicity, and people argue about which ones count, which ones don't, which ones are important. And you can have theories that are uh, simpler in one way, but more complex in another. So uh, just to give an example, um, one sort of simplicity refers to the number of objects something posits, okay? Um, another one uh, appeals to the number of different kinds of objects something appeals to. So to take a, uh, an example from the philosophy of religion, there's uh, the fine-tuning argument. So there's an argument for God's existence that says, you know, when we look at what the scientists tell us, the odds that there would be life in this universe are extremely low. Like so many factors have to be just right in, that it's kind of mind boggling the, the probability of this. It's, it's just incredibly low. Well, one response people sometimes give is a multiverse hypothesis. So they say, yeah, but if our universe were just one of an perhaps infinite number of universes, then it's to be expected that at least some of them would be in this range. And, you know, they try to avoid the problem. I only mention that just to kind of illustrate uh, the debate there. Sometimes people will try to appeal to simplicity on one side or the other. So the, the naturalist will sometimes say the multiverse hypothesis is simpler than positing God, right? Because they'll say um, it posits fewer kinds of things, right? Both views posit physical objects, but they'll say, but the multiverse hypothesis, that's all it posits is physical stuff. The other side, you posit physical stuff and this immaterial uh, substance, God. On the other side, the theist will say, no, actually, this hypothesis is simpler because you, uh, the naturalist, are positing an infinite number of things, right? 
And so they'll say, that's way more complex. And so that, you know, there's this fight about which kind of simplicity. Setting that aside, I actually don't think either of those kinds of simplicity are what really matter. Uh, <laughs> but that's just to show you some of the complexity. It's a great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a nice way to get a handle on this. The right, sort of right. simplicity I think matters uh, is in terms of, and maybe these are related to it, but in terms of uh, how many fundamental regularities you have to propose, right? So if you're looking at a big picture, how many brute facts do you have to accept mm. in order to do your work, right? And so I think accepting fewer is better, right? So doing, doing more explanatory work with less stuff in that sense, less um, unexplained assumptions or so on is better than um, having to assume more stuff. It, that's kind of a rough way to characterize a kind of simplicity. Okay. I, I actually had this written down. And so maybe I actually realized what I have written down is slightly different because at first I was like, my mind went the complete opposite direction, but I'm realizing that it's a slightly, it's slightly different. When we talk about explanatory power, oh, we, we were talking about simplicity. That's why. One mm -hmm. of the things for explanatory power is how big is the, uh, going back, we said, how big is the consistent cluster? Right. Right. And so it, it gives us more brute facts to work with. But simplicity, on the other hand, says we only need to accept a couple. And, almost, and I'm probably just talked myself into um, an unnecessary uh, dead end there. But uh, do you understand what I'm saying? How like it's almost yeah, like yeah. the two conflict. No, yeah, I think you're you're actually hitting upon um, what's often a tension is explanatory power concerns how many things can we explain? Right, right. Simplicity, in in a sense, is how how few things do we have to accept without explanation? Right. So, ah, uh, uh, but the solution is that that you can s explain a lot of things by just accepting a few. Right. That's the goal. Uh, okay. Yeah yeah. 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 Now the Got worry it. is often to increase your explanatory power. So to explain more things, right. you have to give up someone's simplicity, right? So you have to add more complexity right. to account for more and vice versa to get to more simplicity. You might explain fewer things. And so sometimes there's a trade-off uh, and, and then, you know, there's other explanatory virtues, but I'll just mention uh, about the trade-off there. That's yeah. the really hard question. Is, yeah. Okay. You've got all these virtues. So I, I mentioned explanatory power, predictive power, simplicity. I think those are the main ones. I also in the book talk about beauty, um, yeah. which some people just equate with simplicity. But mm -hmm. if you look at uh, you know the work of scientists, they often treat beauty as this different thing, and they describe it differently. Sometimes they talk about it is in terms of like symmetry amongst equations or. Sometimes they mention this idea of this uh, sense of inevitability, like if anything were different in the theory, it would just all fall apart somehow, like it wouldn't work. Um, and they often will appeal to this as, you know, why do you accept this, the theoretical folks, because it's such a beautiful theory. What hmm. I think is is pretty wild and impressive is often they end up being correct <laughs> because of that, right? They're, they're looking at just, is this a beautiful theory? And then it gets it right when we test things, right? Yeah. And so philosophers are, you know, often suspicious of this because they'll say things like, you know, why should we think the world is beautiful in this sense? However, if you look just kind of empirically minded, there's a good track record of yeah. when scientists follow, you know, beauty as a guide to truth, they tend to get things right. And so mm -hmm. if you're kind of looking practically like, you know, the philosopher worries, well, why should we think the, the, the world is beautiful in this sense? What justification do we have? A more practically minded you know, philosopher or individual might say, it's getting it right. So that's good reason. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, would that, it reminds me of the word elegant too. Like you often hear like yes. an elegant theory, very similar. Um, yes. 
I, before you, you, and you did want to talk about the, the trade-off and I, I want to respect that. You also mentioned, um, conservatism. Um, and I think I know, uh, I think I know, you know, what you're going for there, but if you could explain that for our, our listeners. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I've got a copy of the book over here, but I didn't look through to see which ones I'm missing. Yeah. yeah. Conservatism is just this idea that, um, where possible, it's best to kind of conserve what we already accept. And so to get a handle yeah. on this, it, it's often helpful to compare, you know, two hypotheses. So imagine we have two hypotheses that are equally good on all of our other measures, whatever they are. Um, one of them requires very little to no revisions in our current accepted, you know, corpus of scientific knowledge. The other requires radical changes. The first, in this case, the first hypothesis is much more conservative. Right. So it conserves more of what's already there. Um, and so a lot of people uh, think, uh, I think rightly so, that that's a virtue of the theory. If the theory requires you to give up uh, fewer well-supported other you know, hypotheses and theories, that's better than you know, being more revisionistic. So maybe not as exciting, but it's more likely to be true. Right? <laughs> you know? Well, and I think to me, this makes a lot of sense because uh, and people don't you know, uh, especially when, uh, I was younger, I didn't understand the value of this, but the older I've gotten, the more like, the more you have to change, the more work you have to put in. Right. And if you're changing things for no other reason than just to change it, then you're doing a lot of unnecessary work. And that seems like, you know, kind of, kind of the values that we're working with there. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's a, a very good kind of pragmatic, uh, reason for doing it. Right. Like, like, look, just practically this, this is extra work. I think there's also an epistemic reason too. And, and one simple epistemic reason is our, our currently widely accepted theories have a whole lot of evidence in support of them. So when you go revising them, you're going up against all that evidence. So that means the evidence in support of your new theory has got to not only support that theory well, it's got to overcome all of this counter evidence in support of these theories you're wanting to get rid of. And so in a sense, what's what conservatism is, I think, really getting at is just this idea of you got to look at the total evidence. Right. And the more you the better you fit with the total evidence, the better the theory is overall. Hmm. Yeah, because you have more because uh, generally the more established theory is going to have more evidence and more work behind it. That makes sense. OK. Uh, did not think of the epistemic reason. That, that's very helpful. Uh, even as you're talking about. Um, you know, more explanatory versus, um, you know, I'm still stuck on that question, I guess, the, the simplicity side of things. Would a good example of this be Newtonian physics versus uh, relativity? The idea that like, new, like, obviously, I would say Newton's physics are probably simpler, but they don't explain as they don't have as much explanatory power as say relativity, or like uh, Einstein's side of things. Good. Yeah. It, it's tricky whether Newton's are actually simpler, too. I mean, I think they're simpler to grasp. So yeah, that's, that's what's true. Confusing is they're, they're simpler to work with, which is a kind of simplicity. But we might think that's merely a, a practical simplicity. Right. It's how easy is it for us to work with it, which is can be important. I mean, if you've got two otherwise equally good theories, you might as well go with the one that's easier to work with. Right. right. I mean, there's a reason why we still use Newtonian mechanics to build bridges and things. Right. Because right. It's right. Right. It's not as exact, it's not as correct, but it's close enough for what we need. Um, but another sort of simplicity gets to um, these epistemic dimensions, which is uh, makes it where we have more reason to think the theory is true. And so in that case, it's, it's at least not obvious to me that Newtonian mechanics is simpler. Right? So, you know, it, 
Um, it, it could be that it's it's simpler and yet fails on these explanatory dimensions, right? Just doesn't account for the data. Or it could be that their you know relativity is simpler than Newtonian mechanics. It just kind of depends on you know like the nitty gritty details is going to make a difference there. Right, you're different. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, and I'd never, I hadn't, I haven't done a lot of work in simplicity, and I hadn't really thought of it until you talked about. It, but yeah, simplicity is a very complex topic, which is hilarious. Um, so yeah, that phrase "close enough for what we need," I think, uh, kind of as we wrap up here, might be really helpful. Um, what uh, can you explain to us the value of models and the trade-offs uh, in relying on models? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the value is, uh, I, I think they're indispensable. So right, yeah. right. No, I, like you can't, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. do anything without them. So that's very valuable. Uh, but the thought is, you know, with models, uh, we're always looking at wh whether we're doing science or just to live in our everyday lives. We're trying to understand uh, a, a portion of the world, right? And so world, I use that in the philosophical sense, the broad sense, I mean, like the entire universe, right? We're trying to, we're trying to understand a portion of it. We're, we're never modeling everything in the world or else we would just be dealing with the world, not a model, right? right. It's, it's, right. it's the same thing. Um, so we're always looking at a portion, but even then there's so much complexity in the world around us. As I, as I mentioned in the book, things that might seem, oh, this is not all that complex are hugely complex. Right. So I think I just used two examples in the book. I, I talk about, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, now everyone appreciates this is hugely complex. There's so many moving right. parts, so many factors as you know, we enter yet another season of dealing with the pandemic. Um, but even something that might seem less complex, something like uh, the causal influences on obesity. I, I present this chart in the book that just shows right. it's just insanely complex. And so in order for us, given our limited resources, both you know physical resources and just our cognitive mental resources being limited, to get a handle on things, we have to model, right? So we have to make it more manageable. Um, so they're indispensable in that sense. But there's always trade-offs, right? Because a model of any system isn't the exact system. So it's going to have right. to leave out some of the information. Um, so you might think, uh, I like to use an example uh, of maps. Because maps are, in a sense, you know, in this broad sense, they're a kind of model. So if you're looking at a, you know, a street map, you want to figure out how to get to a restaurant. Uh, so you pull up, you know, an app on your phone, whatever your favorite map app is, uh, and you put it in and look. Right? It's going to give you information, right? It's going to show you the streets, probably show you the distance, give you different routes. That's information about that area of the world. It's not going to tell you, most likely, uh, mine doesn't anyway, the color of the buildings you're passing how many people are walking by, right? These are facts about the world. It's just going to leave out. So models, in a sense, uh, are always going to be, I think, some form of idealization. So they're, they're not going to be fully uh, accurate in all details. Now, there's two ways, two, two at least broad ways that they'll often do this. One is models will sometimes simplify by abstracting. And so that just means they'll abstract from some of the details. So your, your app on your phone that's showing you a map to the restaurant, it's just leaving out information, right? Hopefully it's not adding in any false information. It's just leaving things out, right? Because what it's trying to do is it's trying to give you an answer to a specific question. You wanna know, how do I get from here to the restaurant? You don't care about, you know, 
what color the buildings are. You don't care about how many pigeons are on the sidewalk, right? Unless it's an insane number of them, then you might care. But you, know, <laughs> you don't care about that. You care about how do I get there? So you can leave all that information out. Um, another way that models can idealize is, though, that they might falsify information. And mm. this, this is really puzzling for people. It's like, wait a minute. How can having false information in our model actually help our explanatory goal, help us reach our explanatory goals? Well, the reason is by adding in some false, you know, false information in a model, it can also it can help you realize or help emphasize certain aspects uh, or certain features of what you're looking at that are irrelevant for the question you're trying to answer. Right. So uh, a nice example of this from the biological sciences are often when biologists and philosophers of biology are looking at populations and trying to explain various things that happen uh, with populations, they'll sometimes just add into their models that the population size is infinitely large. Now, obviously that's false, right? They know that when they put it in, but what yeah. that does is it helps us focus in and isolate the factors that really matter. So by putting in that false value that we know is false, so we have to be careful. It's not like we, we're not doing a good job modeling when we have false information that we don't realize is false, right? Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm tracking. Yes. Intentionally <laughs> false information where we go, okay, we're putting this information in because that's showing us and help emphasize to us that the size of the population is irrelevant for explaining what we want. It's some other feature. Uh, and so I think models do a good job of that. They make things more manageable. And they, what they do is they help us realize which factors are really important when accounting for the phenomena we're, we're trying to explain. Would, would that definition of false is interesting to me. Would that be very similar to, like, could you use the word hypothetical there? Uh, maybe, yeah. I, I, I would hesitate to because hypothetical, I, I tend to think of as, you know, if something's hypothetical, uh, I might be treating it as true even though I don't know whether it's true or not. So, right. So I might actually be agnostic about it and okay. then treat it as hypothetically true. Whereas in this case, I know it's false and, but I'm plugging it in anyway. Yeah. Gotcha. That's, that's really interesting. Um, well, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, Dr. Kevin McCain it has been an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on. Uh, it's what's one thing that you would leave our listeners with uh, from your book? What's, a, what's one big takeaway that you think is, is really important for the person listening? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think the, the biggest takeaway that I would hope people get, and this is something that I, I try to press in other work as well. It's, it's kind of a big thing for me is, is for people to realize, you know, if they read the book or even if not, if they just listen to this and decide I got all I need from the book. <laughs> um, you know, the big thing to, to get out of this is that, um, we shouldn't expect science to give us absolute certainty about things, right? It's mm -hmm. a mistake, I think, probably one of the biggest mistakes is people thinking if uh, a particular theory or hypothesis doesn't give us absolute certainty about why something happens or how it happens, um, then it's not real science or it's bad science or something like that. I, I, that's just false, right? No scientific theory can do that. If you're looking for that, you're never going to find it, right? So what, what I would really urge people to do is to think about um, what we want from scientific theories and hypotheses are things that are well supported by the evidence. Looking for certainty 
or expecting uh, a theory or hypothesis to explain everything. It's just asking for too much from anything. No scientific theory can or does mm. do that, right? And so that would be the big thing I would hope people would get is, you know, we have to learn to deal with uncertainty. And so the yeah. biggest thing we can do is figure out, okay, we, we, we're never going to be certain, but how do we evaluate the evidence so that it's still what's reasonable for us to believe and what's not? Because I, I do would also emphasize the fact that we can never be absolutely certain doesn't by any means mean anything goes, right? There are still right. theories that it's, that it's rational to accept and theories that it's not rational to accept. And that all yeah. comes down to the evidence. Yeah. And there's definitely theories that will help you live your life better and theories that will not help you live your life better. Right. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> right. Some theory, you know, if you follow certain theories, you will not live a very long life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, thank you again. Um, and uh, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great.